Travelers spend a lot of time dreaming of the places they've just got to see while they're able. And guess what? Someone's already made the list for you. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and in a moment, Patricia Schultz joins us to offer a little inspiration for new adventures far and near. She's the woman who compiled a list of the 1,000 places to see before you die. That's her book, and it quickly became one of the best-selling travel books of all time. I wanted each of the thousand places to be mini adventures so that each of the thousand places, in fact, gives you many suggestions from somebody who has experienced it themselves. Patricia Schultz is our guest to encourage us to visit some of the breathtaking places on our planet while we still have a breath to take. And later in the hour, we'll take your calls and catch up on listener emails to help you prepare for your next trip. We'll see what concerns you have and get some of your ideas for adding to our life lists for travel. Stay with us and get inspired in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're making the most out of the time we've each been given on this planet by getting a taste of some of its wide-ranging flavors and astounding beauty today on Travel with Rick Steves. There are millions of possibilities to sort through to pick your next travel destination. And the woman who summarized her favorite thousand joins us in a moment. And later in the hour, we'll field your calls and emails to help you plan your next travel adventure with practical tips and a confident attitude. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, our address is radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Patricia Schultz, who writes A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And this book has been a, a phenomenon in the in the travel book industry, and, and it's just great to have Patricia with us today to learn more about this book and to think about some places we all might want to see before we die. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Did you actually write the book, or did you oversee the editing of the book? What was your role? No, no, it was me, all right. And um, to confirm, in fact, that it was a labor of love of one person alone, it was uh, an eight-year project from beginning to end. And really, it was drawn from an entire life of travel, but it was a consolidated eight-year period from the time I signed on to do the book until the moment the ink was dry and it was on the shelf. So, no, it, it's pretty much all me. Yeah, I've been busy. It is a wonderful—it just feels good. This is a brick of a book, if ever there was in the travel business, and thumbing through it is just like spinning the globe. I can see why this book is so successful, because all of these thousand destinations are in bite-sized chunks, and in here we got Jogjakarta. Oh, you know, I was there. Cool. I made one of the, the places that Patricia thought made the cut, and uh, you yes. read it, and you can compare oh, your please. own— Oh, <laughs> please. I'm sure you've made about 99.9% of these places. <laughs> well, it must have been fun to put it all together— and it must have been gratifying to see the work completely done. What was it like after you had finished eight years putting this book together? You know, I've often thought that, boy, was this publisher lucky and having signed me up because I so love to both travel and then run home to commit it all to paper and try to capture the essence of how wonderful this most recent trip was, that I really was the perfect person because if you're going to take eight years to do something, you need that passion to get you up and out of bed every morning with a smile on your face. And in the eight years, I could have written for another eight years, but at that mm. point, the publisher was tapping his toe saying, <laughs> I think it's time. So I just have this inherent 
lust and wanderlust and passion for seeing the next thousand things and then the thousand after that. It's never enough. I never feel like I've seen it all. I never feel like it's time to sit home on the couch. And so I am, I think, a great traveler in that sense. I don't pretend to have seen it all, but I do pretend to have that great sense of curiosity that you absolutely need to have this be a profession that you can say you've accomplished some degree of success. And I feel that with the book because I see the numbers and I feel how excited people get to talk about it. And I see that it's a few years now. It came out in 2003. It continues. It maintains a certain degree of sales that is very unprecedented. And at the end of the day, it's simply because people love to travel and love to mm. read about where other people are traveling to that they might um, make happen in their own lifetime as well. Plus, your market is a little bigger than my market because people buy my Paris book if they're going to Paris. You can buy your book if you're just going to the bathroom for an extended sit. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, thank you for that analogy. <laughs> you you have a huge market. Anybody who does travel or wishes they traveled or who you know has traveled, this is the book that is your scrapbook of all the world's delights. It you know you and know it's true. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I was just going to say that it is so perfect whether for the person who knows they're about to travel and isn't quite sure where to go, as well as the person who's not so sure when they're going to be able to travel next. But for that reason, it's the quintessential armchair tool because it is um, hopefully enlightening and exciting to think of the possibilities, whether you've got the airplane ticket booked or not. And I like to think that the demographic is all across the board because I was very conscious about that while writing the book. I wanted it to be for the graduate about to approach a gap year or the 65-year-old who's finally retiring and wanting to see everything they've only been dreaming about for the last 40 years. You know, a lot of people can spend eight years doing something very worthwhile, and they can be very talented and artistic and everything just right, but it doesn't strike a chord with the market. You're lucky you've uh, invested eight years into something and come up with something that really has struck a chord. To yeah. what do you attribute that? Well, I, th I think it's um, like the perfect storm of circumstances. Um, first and foremost, I, I need to give a shout out to my publisher, Peter Workman, who is such a brilliant man and such a visionary because um, while other people were saying, you know, Peter, I don't know about this before you die thing. Um, he understood that if people found it to be irreverent, that was a good thing. And if people found it to be kind of marginally alarming, that was a good thing because this isn't a dress rehearsal and time is precious. Um, and also the baby boomer thing. There are close to, um, I think, 80 mm -hmm. million of us. Mm -hmm. uh, people are taking longer vacations or vacations at all. The numbers are astounding how many people will bypass those precious two years to take no vacation time whatsoever because we're convinced from early on that, um, you know, your desk isn't going to be there when you come back after two weeks or the company is going to fall apart and crumble. And people are taking longer vacations. They're traveling a little bit more. They're spending a little bit more. They're going to places that are a little bit more far-flung. Uh, more adventurous, and usually that translates to more costly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just this inherent sense of travel that is nothing new. Um, people, you know, for 30 centuries now have been traveling since the ancient Romans kind of struck off to visit other 
parts of the ancient Roman Empire. I don't know. I'm also lucky to think that um, this all came together at a point where following September 11th and people stayed very close to home for a period of time. I live in New York City, the city I felt, you know, with a few muggings here and there to be a relatively safe city. And could we say that the day after September 11th? No, I think not. So slowly, slowly, people struck off and took to world travel once more. And numbers are again where they used to be. We have other things that are holding us back with an economy, et cetera, that's not so stable. But people will always travel, always, always, always. They may, you know, go to Europe for eight days instead of two weeks. They may go to, um, you know, Paris instead of a more costly African safari, but they'll always travel. I'm speaking, by the way, with Patricia Schultz, and she's the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Patricia spent eight years, what a wonderful chore, collecting all of these great travel destinations around the world. I love this quote that I read in your book, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the places and moments that take our breath away. Uh, We're talking about, in generalities here, take me to a couple of your favorite places, Patricia, in the book that actually take your breath away. Oh, um... That's such a loaded question because, you know, you always hear this stock question of what's your favorite place. And I once read such a perfect answer and they said it is my most recent trip. And I understood what this person was saying because you're still jazzed and you're still very much with a head full of very vibrant, colorful memories of your most recent trip. But um, I go way back sometimes to where it's cloudy and kind of fuzzy, and I'm not even sure when I was there or what the circumstances were. I remember being in Yosemite, and it was, yeah, I know people want something more exotic like Mauritius or Madagascar. You know, Woody Allen has this great quote about, please make me two with nature. Um, He was such an urban New York City guy. He just was uncomfortable in those pristine, beautiful surroundings that was, you know, Mother Nature. I, on the other hand, felt almost like a moment of epiphany. And I felt the specialness of being surrounded, the quiet that was almost thundering. And I, in that moment, understood the preciousness we have in our national parks, uh, not only in the USA and Canada. I think they're some of the most stunningly beautiful slivers of natural beauty we have left on this continent. Um, I have idyllic moments that crowd my memory because they are many of the three years that I was extremely lucky to live in Florence, Italy. And all of the times we would take off by bus or by train or sometimes hitchhiking, those were the days, into Tuscany, which I came to know very well. And people will roll their eyes and say, well, duh, Tuscany is just one big gorgeous moment. And it is, but we saw corners of it that had never seen a non-Italian, and that Michelangelo would feel very comfortable in seeing as far as the eye could see the rolling hills and the cypresses and the dirt roads and the wine-growing region around Chianti that really haven't changed Mm. much at all in hundreds of years. It's interesting when I I asked you, and I I didn't mean to say the best, I just think, uh, because I get that same question a lot, and you you can't say what's your favorite place when you're a traveler that loves wherever (laughs) you go, but things that just sit in your mind as as a gorgeous memory. And when you said Yosemite, I thought, yeah, for me, people might expect me to say, you know, something in Paris or, or yeah. whatever. But I think of Banff and Jasper up in uh, Canada or rafting on a river in Idaho where you get up in the middle of the night and you can see the constellations reflecting on the <gasps> river. And there's just some sort of peace and tranquility. And you 
you reminded what a beautiful planet we live on. And then, of course, you go to Florence and you go to the museums and you all can celebrate all the things that people have done with their creative spirit. But boy, just to connect with nature, that's a, a very important part of this, isn't it? Yes, and when I did the USA and Canada book, the second of these two books, um, 1,000 Places to See in the USA and Canada, I was always astounded that well-intentioned friends would say to me, well, how will you ever find a 1,000 places in North America? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you haven't gotten off the couch much, have you? Uh, yeah. Because what we have here just under our nose is something nothing less than Remarkable, um, yeah. majestic, sweeping, awesome, gorgeous, sometimes just downright fun and available and great for a long weekend or a short weekend or half a tank of gas or whatever. So, you know, if, if you can't get on a plane for 22 hours for whatever reason, you don't have the time or you don't have mm -hmm. the money because those are usually the two things that dictate where we go and why and for how long. Look what we have here just down the road. We're talking with <laughs> Patricia Schultz, and she's written the classic now, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, and that's the global coverage, and she's got a new book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die in the USA and Canada. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Patricia Schultz is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's here to tempt us to find out for ourselves just what we're missing about some of the most intriguing places around the world. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, one of my, my least favorite assignments is when the European Travel Commission asks me to write an article and feature all 20 countries that they're promoting equally. <laughs> and I just hate that because I don't want to yeah, talk equally <laughs> about Cyprus and France or Tuscany and Istria, you know. I, I got to wonder, when you assembled yours, how much of it is subjective? I mean, do you think, oh, I got to have one for every country? Or did you have any quotas that way that you dealt with? Well, to be frank, and that's a great question that is not surprising coming from you because you very much are in a similar situation often with the USA book because I wanted to really do justice and not overlook places perhaps that I would have only because I didn't know them as well as I should. I kind of did this big spreadsheet and I wanted a balance where a balance was necessary but that was only my foundation, and then I took it from there. So every state is represented. 
out of no sense of obligation apart from the fact that every state needs to be represented because each has its own specialness and its own corners of surprise and its its own little gems that within the context of that state are real standouts. Mm -hmm. So would you compare, you know, the best barbecue pit in South Carolina to um, Denali National Park? No, you can't. And so I didn't. But (laughs) I think this great mix of everything across the board from the unknown to the world famous, from the humble to the awesome is what makes up each of these books. The first book, I have to say, I was a little bit more naive and overwhelmed. It was the world, and I didn't pretend to know it as intimately as I should have. But I also understood that to the limited degree that I knew it, I had more than enough material because a thousand places when you're talking about the globe is almost embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It's a sliver. It's a beginning. The, an embarrassment of riches. It's a good uh, challenge for this life, I'd say. Now, Patricia, you used to write for Access Travel Guides, is that right? Uh, yeah, it was one of a few different travel guides I wrote for. I wrote for Fromers and Berlitz for Access. Which um, areas did you cover as a, as a guidebook writer in, in specific? Um, a number of different ones, uh, predominantly Europe and most especially for Italy. I lived on and off in Italy for 10 years, and that for me was, I think, really an integral piece in my puzzle mm. that was life because um, not only did I come to know a particular area of the world that is just incredibly, really astonishingly rich in history and culture and food and gastro. I mean, really, the list goes on. But also, I used it as a base uh, from which I traveled quite extensively through Europe early on and came to understand when most people in their 20s and 30s were, you know, feverishly working at whatever they were lucky enough to have secured as a post-graduation job. I was off doing my gap year that became many gap years and Mm. uh, was enriched in ways that I hadn't anticipated. To me, it was quite a surprise. Patricia, uh, let's just get right into Britain, for instance, because I love the way you covered Britain. And just tell me what comes to mind why these places made the cut. For instance, Windsor Palace. I think that of the countless castles that are open to the public. This perhaps was the most enlightening to me. We had an excellent guide who brought to life centuries and centuries of British history. I understood more about, I think, British royalty and the part they played in history in the afternoon we spent there than I did maybe a semester back in Mm. school. Like I think Blenheim is the single most important country mansion or countryside palace to see in Britain, and, and you listed it also. What did you like about Blenheim Palace? Well, I, I um, the whole Winston Churchill connection for me, I believe he was born there. Um, the gardens as well are considered some of the, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of the English garden, I think, around the world. They're known to have uh, created some of the most magnificent anywhere on the globe. And the gardens in, at Blenheim are particularly renowned for being outstanding any time of the year, particularly in the spring, summer, and fall. So that's a great package deal. Then you get the wonderful exhibit about Churchill and his life, and then at the same time you get a classic example of a formal English garden. 
Yes, and also I think what most people don't know that rather than feel that um, when you go to London you can see only London, it's such a small and accessible country that all of these day trips, and mm-hmm. they are feasible and super enjoyable as day trips, are really possible by the dozens. And Blenheim, I think, is one of the first that I would suggest to anyone. Um, Hadrian's Wall, I find that one of the more evocative places. There's a lot of Rome in Britain, and you chose Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, and who knew? To me, that was quite an eye-opener. A lot of, all of, I think, travel in general is a real who-knew experience for me because of the years I spent in Rome, I just never understood that the Romans really got very far beyond Italy. To know that they expanded and flourished um, as far north as what is now Great Britain, to me, you know, in the baths also in the city, that magnificent city of mm. Bath, I, I didn't quite put it all together until I visited. And again, it, it drove home to me the fact that travel is education and historically enlightening. I understood that the Romans had been there 2,000 years ago and had created this wall, Hadrian's Wall, named after the Emperor Hadrian in that moment, mm-hmm. uh, to keep out those you know, marauding barbarians to the north. Now, Patricia, you put in both Oxford and Cambridge, and I felt that was a little bit of a cop-out. You didn't choose one or the other. (laughs) Were you concerned about offending people, or or why did you list them both? Oh, I was never concerned about (laughs) offending people because invariably you're going to offend people left, right, (laughs) and center. Um, One person said to me, I would never buy this book because there's just not enough information about each of these places. And another person said to me, I could never buy this book because there's so much information. Really, do you need a thousand? (laughs) Why not just ten? So Oxford and Cambridge, to me, you know, to one, I, I went with friends who had visited from Oxford, uh, who had, I'm sorry, graduated from Oxford, and to the other, um, again, with friends who had graduated from Cambridge. So they were both guided by insiders who knew these places as only a, you know, undergraduate can. And I relived as they did the nostalgia and and got to see the museums connected with each of the universities that I probably would have overlooked because I don't usually associate excellent collections of world-class art with universities, although it's probably a very common thing that was not part of my orbit. Boy, those are good examples of colleges that have great collections of art. Yeah, excellent. You must have had a huge impact on the places that you recommended. And uh, for instance, you recommended not only just hotels supporting these various places, but you recommended a few hotels actually as destinations in themselves. Uh, Nancy from Kennesaw, Georgia, emails us and she writes, many of the listings in your book are specific hotels rather than place destinations, such as the pyramids. What was it about these hotels that pushed them onto the top 1,000 list in your book and and turned them from places to sleep to actual destinations? Well, I collect hotels the way most people collect matchbooks, although that also is a thing of the past, I'm glad to say. But I love hotels, and I'm extremely attracted to hotels of great history, uh, the 15th century castles in Ireland that are now welcoming guests, the 15th century monastery in Cusco, where we spent the night before striking off for Machu Picchu, tiny little uh, abandoned Renaissance monasteries in the hill towns of Italy, which now take paying guests. So um, anything that 
to me, is every bit as enlightening from a cultural and historical and architectural standpoint as a regular hotel, to me, is something that sits apart. And the big hotels, you know, the the five-star hotels in Paris or in Bangkok and Hong Kong that are really, you know, five stars plus plus, you know, you haven't won the lottery, you can't afford to spend one night or even two, but go for high tea or go to sit in the lobby and people watch or go to the restaurant, which, you know, often is one of the best. These are times when you can eat probably better than anywhere else in town in these restaurants, which is not something you could say 10 years ago when the concept was quite different. So, um, yes, I love these big hotels. The Historic Hotels of America has a wonderful collection of hotels that need to be a minimum of 50 to 100 years old that are sprinkled across America and are great places to stay. And so, yes, especially if they're in the middle of town or in the middle of these cities, I like to go and just sit in Mm -hmm. the lobby and see something of the magnificent architecture. I think that is a great tip, and I'm glad that you listed hotels as destinations, and also that you remind people that you don't need to be able to afford $500 a night to stay there. I used to pop in on the Posadas and the Paradores in Spain and Portugal that are historic places that I couldn't afford to sleep in necessarily, but you go there for breakfast or for tea, and you experience that. When you're in Singapore, you can pop into the Raffles Hotel and get a sense of that elegant, you know, 19th century kind of aristocratic travel. Uh, in India, you've got these Maharajas palaces that are just earning their keep by renting out to travelers. So and they're magnificent. It's great that you did that. And then what you call home for that night is actually the destination. Yeah. And, you know, again, like I said, if you are lucky enough to be able to stay there, then all the more power to you. I often mix it up in that I'll save, you know, if I've got X number of nights, two nights will be in a kind of over-the-top place that mm-hmm. you you know you can only dream about staying and then you mm-hmm. stay two nights at a and b or an inn or with the family etc and then you know again onto your next city and something particularly dreamy mm-hmm. um and then followed by three nights of not so dreamy so you get a little bit of everything and the same with eating or the same with anything you know a picnic for lunch and then a great place mm-hmm. for dinner because let's be realistic travel can be expensive but it doesn't need to impact the experience at all if you're clever and if you've done research and a little bit of homework With our dollar the way it is, that's so important. And just to remind people, hotels are public spaces. Many of them are historic buildings that are obligated to let the public in because they're inhabiting something that is part of the heritage of this country. And even with our, you know, with our weak dollar, one of my things in Italy is I've just decided, okay, I'm going to have tap water and take the extra $4 and add it on to the price (laughs) of the glass of wine so I can really still have a nice glass of wine. (laughs) Uh, We got Adrian on the line in Seattle. Uh, Adrian, uh, join us in our conversation. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Thanks for your call, Adrian. Hi, Rick. One of the destinations that I think is... uh um, a great choice for anyone who's interested in history um, and experiencing other cultures is Syria, which is primarily, it's like Egypt before um, Champollion. If you kneel down in the desert of Syria and, and look across the sand, you probably see a hundred tells from any, any place that you are. Um, and the excavations that have taken place range from ancient sites at Mari um, through to the Crusader castles of Chevalia and Marqueb which is on the coast, and to places like Ugarit, um, uh, which is near Latakia, where the first consonant language was developed. I mean, Syria's got a wealth of, uh, of interest, both historical and cultural, for any traveler. 
Now, Adrian, you sound like quite a scholar when you talk about places in Syria. It, it seems like a, a precondition for really getting the most out of those kind of visits is to know a little bit about what you're looking at. Actually, there's, there's two ways to look at it. If, if you know a lot about um, history, or if you even know just a little bit about history before you go to Syria, I think it would really help your visit. The other way to look at it is that if you do go to Syria, um, you're inspired to learn about it by seeing the sites, even if you don't have the background knowledge. So you can kind of approach it both ways. Yeah, as long as you're um, lively in the mind as you travel. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Syria. Well, thanks, Adrian. A lot of people don't consider Syria. Oh, Syria. I would go back to Syria in a nanosecond. To me, it was one of those um, really those experiences that just spun me around and kept me thinking about Syria for years afterwards. It's very, very special. The people are wonderful. The Souks of Aleppo, I think, are one of my favorite marketplaces anywhere. A kind of heady experience where, you know, the sounds, the sights, the smells, you can bring them back up in your memory in a minute. Adrian, when was the last time you were in Syria? Uh, the last time I was in Syria is about, um, I think, just over five years ago, but I was fortunate enough to lead about 30 groups through Jordan and Syria and Israel and the region, so I know it fairly well. Would you still go now, given the tension in the region? I think it would be very interesting to go to Syria now. Yes, I, I wouldn't hesitate to go. I, I don't think there's much of a security threat at all. I think it's an interesting time to go there simply because, of course, there's a lot of Iraqi refugees in Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also Syria is, has always been fairly open to tourism, and lots of Europeans go there w- without an issue. I, I think um, hmm. our, our viewpoint of the Middle East is particularly influenced by the current political situations and our role in them. Yeah, I was just in Iran recently, and I'll tell you, it's uh, much more accessible than you would imagine. I was surprised or impressed that there was a lot of Europeans going there, and it was about as casual as smoking, oh, yes. a, you know, as, as casual as smoking a Cuban cigar in France. It's just no big deal, but it's a big deal here. And uh, the Lonely Planet book sells very well in Iran, whereas Americans go there and they think, "Wow, I didn't even know you had tourism here." So it's um, <laughs> it's true. You can go to a lot of places on this planet that, from an American perspective, it might seem a little dicey. But if you're French or Australian or or Irish, it's just sort of another place to go and enjoy some uh, different food and some great weather and rich culture. Adrian, thanks so much for your call. You're very welcome, Rick. Patricia, one thing I really enjoyed about your book was experiences. You had the hammam, the Turkish bath, chocolate to die for, uh, the cooking of Paul Bocuse, uh, coaching through Bavaria, the red light district in Amsterdam. Uh, tell me your thinking about when you list things, not just to list uh, Munich, but to list catching a horse-drawn carriage and riding under the great castles of Mad King Ludwig. Each of these places in and of itself is an experience, and it's almost semantics, how you word it, how you present it, et cetera. But I wanted each of the thousand places to be kind of mini adventures so that not only do I send you to a particular place, but I encourage you to do a particular thing and how to do it and where to do it and what time of the year to go. And if there's a particular festival that happens once a year, try to make that happen, try to arrange that into your schedule so that each of the thousand places, in fact, gives you many suggestions as from somebody who has experienced it themselves. So a lot of these experiences that you mentioned, in fact, are almost cliches, but I'm a big fan of cliches. I think because over the centuries, travel is nothing new, that these become cliches for very good reason. Do you want to go to Venice and not take a gondola through the back canals of Venice and see the house where Marco Polo grew up and see corners of Venice as he must have seen them pretty much unchanged just because it's tacky and touristy and expensive? Uh, No, it's almost a must-do. It's a very 
inherent part of the magic of Venice, as with the hammam in Istanbul or the red double-decker buses in London, what a lot of people rolling their eyes. But it's the way I experience them, and I find those particular cities the most enjoyable. Ideally, there are hundreds of such recommendations in both books. You know, I'm so glad you say that because I have an ongoing um, lesson I want to give my tour guides when they lead our groups around Europe is this. I don't care how tacky and tired you think slap dancing and yodeling is. Slap dancing and yodeling is the tie roll. And when we take our groups there, we want to see some good slap dancing. Uh, so those are the cliches. If you're a tour guide and you've seen it six times a year for the last decade, well, that's too bad. This is your traveler's one trip in a lifetime to the Tyrol or to Venice or to Big Ben, and they're going to do that classic dream-come-true travel experience. And what you said is true. It, it oftentimes is the first and only time that people will go to a particular destination. You know, the realities of going back and visiting again, who knows? There's mm -hmm. just so many other things to see. Are you really going to return? So see it all. See the cliches. See the usual stuff. See the unusual stuff. Just see as much as you can. Hit the ground running and enjoy it as much as you can because it may be the only time you're ever there. Patricia Schultz, I've thoroughly enjoyed Dreaming About the World with You. And congratulations on the huge success of your book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And when people have seen all thousand places in the world, I, I bet you'd like them to pick up that book, A Thousand Places to See You Before You Die, in the United States and Canada, and keep going. Oh, you could keep going for many lifetimes. Thank you for having me, Rick. Happy travels, Patricia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Up next, we turn the focus to your travel plans. We'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK to talk about any concerns you have in planning your next trip. And we'll catch up on some recent emails we've received at radio at ricksteves.com as we consider just a few of the thousands of possibilities for your next vacation. So what are the next places on your life list to visit? We're taking your calls at 877-333-RICK and checking your emails to radio at ricksteves.com for the rest of the hour. It's your turn to inspire our travel dreams on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We got Sue on the line in California. Hi, Sue. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. Well, thanks. What's on your mind? I'm traveling with a, a group of um, all females, uh, two moms and two teenage daughters. We're going to be going to London, France, and Italy. And I wondered, are there any safety tips that you have for us as we travel through Europe? Well, I've been traveling with different groups for 25 years, and, you know, women are concerned about where can they go safely after dark and so on. You need to exercise the same common sense you would in a big city in the United States when you're in a big city in Europe. A lot of women say, is it safe to go there? Well, that's really a personal question. Some women would not be comfortable walking around San Francisco late at night, and they probably wouldn't be comfortable walking around Madrid safe at night. I would say if you're comfortable walking around an American city in a certain time or whatever, you should be more comfortable in Europe. Europe is safer than America from a woman-on-the-street point of view, but obviously you've got to use the, the standard precautions. Now, your daughters, how old are your daughters? They're both 17 years old. 17 years They're going to probably want to get out on their own a little bit, and that's an interesting issue. My wife and I have an 18-year-old daughter, and uh, we've got a 21-year-old boy, and they've been traveling every year, and each year they want a little more independence over there. And I find it is so exciting when somebody's around 18, 17 or 18, to give them a longer leash. I remember the first time my son took off to go to Venice on his own, on a train away from us in a town about an hour away. It was a little nerve-wracking, 
but it really builds a lot of confidence. And the kids I find, the teenage kids in Europe, they understand there's no safety net, and you got to let them get out there and, and make smart decisions. We find there are certain places that the kids are safer and more comfortable after hours. The streets are filled with teenagers just making the scene, and your kids are going to want to get out there. I just think it's fun to, you know, older travelers like to sit in a cafe and watch the world go by, and the, and the younger travelers like to get out into that river of local society and make the scene. And in Italy, of course, it's called the Passeggiata, and in Spain it's called the Paseo, and all of these Mediterranean countries have something similar where everybody's not sitting in front of the TV at night, but they're out walking around, basically flirting and uh, making the scene and seeing and be seen, and, and that's a lot of fun. Okay, well, that's great. And I'm wondering, when I read in your tour book, you suggested withdrawing the maximum amount from your ATM so that you're not charged several times for making those withdrawals. Would you give that same advice for women carrying cash? And, of course, we've already ordered money belts. Uh, how would you suggest that? Is, is there anything different for women in that regard? You know, a woman is no more likely to get pickpocketed than a man. I just think tourists, our, our thieves target tourists, men and women. They target yeah. me because they know I'm an American and they assume I have a lot of money. Uh, sure. You're not going to get mugged. You're not going to get knifed. That happens in the United States. In Europe, it's petty pickpocketing and purse snatching. And they're okay. really good. So the key is, if you're going to use a wallet or a purse, fine, but don't have critical stuff in it. You've got a day's spending money and odds and ends in it. Everything else of great value should be buttoned in, zipped up, or, t- or tied in a money belt and tucked in under your pants or left in the hotel. Um, I occasionally use a hotel safe, but I don't really worry about it too much. I've been traveling in Europe, uh, you know, four months a year for 30 years, and I've never had anything that I know stolen out of my hotel room. Of course, it can happen, but the high-risk thing is your wallet or your day bag. When you sit down at a cafe or you set it down on a park bench or, or whatever, that's at risk. Be really careful that thieves are targeting the day bags of tourists because they know in there is a lot of times their wallet or their purse and their camera and maybe even their passport. So you need to be on the ball that way. As far as changing money goes, yeah, change maximum at the ATM machine. They don't let you change more than $400 or so, but it makes sense to realize with every exchange, you're hit for a fee, X amount. And if you change every day for $100, every time you get a or $3 fee. If you go in once every four days and change $400, you cut your fees by 75%, and, and that's real money. Mm-hmm. Speaking of ATMs, I've read a couple different things about the PIN numbers that you can't start with a zero, and I've read one place that it has to be four digits and another place five digits. Uh, as far as I know, uh, Susan, it needs to be four digits and it needs to be numbers, no letters, because the European pads there have only numbers on them. So you want a four-digit numeric PIN, and you want to let your bank know you're going to be traveling and where you're going to be traveling, and you can up your daily allotment if you want to be able to take more out of the uh, ATM machine. If, if you don't tell the bank you're going to Portugal and all of a sudden they see some action on your card from Portugal, you may be in for a frustration in Portugal because in your interest, they're going to stop that. So let them know where you're going. And at the same time, get advice from them on where you can change money with a smaller uh, expense or a smaller fee because certain banks work with certain banks and you can save a little money that way. Great. Good Great. luck on your trip. Thank you so much. We're looking so forward to it. Two moms and two daughters, you're going to have a trip of a lifetime. Take care of yourself. Okay. <laughs> okay thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Rachel in Westerville, Ohio emailed us, and Rachel writes, My best tip is to stretch your comfort zone while traveling. On a trip to Baden-Baden, I visited the Friedrichsbad, an all-nude co-ed mineral spa in Germany. It took lots of courage to step out of that locker, but now I have a great naked Germany story to tell. My husband told me I'd never see these people again. He's a liar. I saw a couple from the spa the next morning at our breakfast table at the Hotel Ammarkt. 
This is very true. Americans are very slow to, to get comfortable in those spas, and that's where the Germans go to relax. And for them, it's just strip off your clothes and get in there and, and relax, and there's nothing sexual or scary about it. It's just everybody's nude because that's what you do in a spa. A lot of Americans are kind of gawking around, hoping nobody's looking, and you get in there and you realize nobody cares. Uh, it's kind of funny to be in that naked world and get comfortable with it, and then the next morning at breakfast, you see some of the people you were just uh, hanging out with the night before in the nude. Um, it's a good example of getting out of your comfort zone when you're traveling, and it's also a good example of how Americans have a lot of hang-ups when it comes to taking off your clothes. We have Charles on the line in Mountain View, California. Hi, Charles. Thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, what's on your mind? You know, I've, I've rarely gone overseas. I've, I've only been to London once, and I went to Paris once, and I, I'm the kind of person, I think, uh, just from that brief experience, who sort of just likes to walk the streets. And uh, how do you find out if you're in some city in Europe? I mean, how do you learn where uh, places that you might want to avoid that, that maybe aren't so safe and uh and places. I mean, you can tell where all the tourists are because uh, and you can feel safe there, but if yeah. you want to get off the beaten track, how do you know you're not going to end up in some place you might not want to be? Well, that can happen anywhere. You can get in, in a bad neighborhood in Oslo if you really worked at it. And I've spent four months a year for my entire adult life in Europe, and I've got, you know, kind of a a boyish curiosity about going into the bad neighborhoods and checking things out. And a lot of times I'm walking down a main boulevard, and I know this is the bad neighborhood over there. And I dip into it, and I'm I'm kind of aware that I'm surrounded by some pretty shady characters and everything, but I'm curious to look at it. You know, you can find yourself into these areas that are dangerous. And I don't think they're dangerous from getting mugged or knifed or, or yeah. physically injured, but they are dangerous from people um, surrounding you and taking your valuables, you know, um, or yeah. pickpocketing or whatever. Um, you have to look for that. Every time I've gotten into any trouble in Europe, it's because I've been either walking or parking in a bad, stupid neighborhood. It's just if I was more heads up about it, I would have been fine. You just got to know, you know, who's around you? Is it dark? Is it scary looking people? Is it well lit? And is everybody just out for the evening stroll? You know, I think really if you're alert, I would say the biggest danger you really have is in the touristy areas where there's lots of people because that's where you're going to find the thief teams working. And, Charles, I'm just fascinated by that. I'm, I'm just uh, sort of enamored by how good they are. And <laughs> when, when I'm on the Ramblas in Barcelona, for example, I just know there's expert thief teams at work, and every minute there's some naive tourist getting pickpocketed. Again, it's, it's kind of sport. Nobody's getting knifed or mugged. So, yeah. you know, uh, tourists are, can be uh, considered, you know, wealthy, and the people who are trying to pick their pockets are uh, living hand-to-mouth. I watch the games, I watch the shell games, I watch the street musicians, I, I look at the jostling. I know whenever there's jostling going on, somebody's getting pickpocketed. Uh. You know, when I go out adventuring in the evening, I leave my valuables in the hotel room. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, um, okay. It's just really important to realize that even when you think you're really savvy, the street thieves and the con artists are smarter than we are. They just don't want to be vulnerable. I right. uh, hope that gives you some ideas. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks very much. It does. Yeah, and good luck in your exploration of Europe. 
um, I, I guess I want to stress that the theme for me in Europe is things are becoming so affluent. And when there is a new affluence, there's more hope and there's more reason for people not to live a, a life of crime. And I find there's less windows smashing and uh, people's purses being grabbed and so on. In the old days, when there was a lot of poverty in Europe, uh, you know, I used to measure how safe is a parking lot by how the uh, asphalt glittered because there was so many uh, broken wing windows down and just scattered on the ground. Those days are gone nowadays. And I think if you're reasonably on the ball, it's perfectly safe. Thank you very much. Okay, happy travels, Charles. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Todd emails us, and he writes, I'm planning my seventh trip to Europe. I've taken organized tours in the past, but this time I'm going on my own. I prefer to travel at my own pace, traveling mostly by train and by foot. Because of this, I'm getting serious about packing light. The only thing that I can't figure out how to carry on is a small knife for picnicking. How do you suggest combining picnicking with traveling light and carrying on bags? Should I buy a knife here and check my bags both ways, or should I buy a cheap pocket knife in Europe knowing in advance that I wouldn't be bringing it back with me? Also, are there problems with carrying around a small pocket knife or a picnicking knife in Europe? Well, first of all, what you carry around in Europe is completely up to you. You can carry as many knives as you like, and nobody's going to give you a second look. Uh, the big issue is getting it onto the plane, Todd. If you check your bags, you can you can carry all sorts of knives. But if you carry your bag on, which is what I do, then you cannot take big knives. But when it comes to taking a knife on the airplane, of course, you can take as many knives and as big a knife as you want if you check it. But if you're carrying it on, technically, you're not supposed to carry knives on board. I wouldn't push it, frankly. Uh, if you want to carry on your bag, fine. Just pick one up over in Europe. If you end up checking your bag to go home, that's fine. Or you can just give it away or, or leave it before you get on the plane coming home. You know, for picnicking, you don't need a fancy knife. You just need a almost a disposable plastic knife that you can pick up with your dinner on the flight if you wanted to. But the key for you, Todd, is that you're packing light. Because when you're packing light, you are mobile. Enjoy your picnics in Europe and enjoy carrying on your luggage and the freedom that comes with packing light. Diane B. emails us from Portland, and she writes, I'm fortunate enough to go to Israel every year to visit my daughter. When they hear where I'm going, people always ask, is it safe? The answer is, except for the extremists who live beyond its borders and who've been incited to hate, Israel is possibly the safest country I've ever traveled in, and I've been on several continents. Uh, Diane continues to write, Israelis live simply in agricultural communities, in quiet suburbs, and in crowded cities. Public bus transportation is thorough, reliable, and runs almost continuously. Hence, buses, sidewalks, and shops are always occupied. Neighbors have good relationships with each other, and everyone is alert to unusual events. At 11 o'clock at night, you'll see seven-year-olds chaperoning their younger siblings on the buses, and during the day, those same children are found in playgrounds everywhere that are observed by involved neighbors and passers-by. No matter who you are or why you visit there, Israel is constantly astounding and a worthwhile travel experience. Great to get Diane B's uh, insights on Israel, who emails us from Portland. Thanks a lot. We have Alan on the phone in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Alan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh well, what I want to tell you about is one of the missteps that uh, actually my children made, one of the hazards of traveling with children. We were in the uh, London Tube, uh, going to go see the Tower of London, and um, we're waiting. It was early in the morning, about 9 o'clock, so it was very busy. We're waiting to get on the train, and I looked at the train. I said, James, it's too crowded. We can't get in this one. And he said, no, look, we can just shove right in here. And he stepped on the train, and the doors closed. And there goes my child off. He doesn't know where our hotel is. He doesn't know anything. 
And I'm thinking, what am I going to tell the relatives? Oh, your, huh. your child is someplace out in the London tube. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to yell out, get off at the next station! And I had to wait five minutes for the next train, and boy, was that a long five minutes. I got on the next train, looked around at the station, and there he was, sitting, just nonchalantly like, oh, that was fun. What a cool kid. How old is your child? He was 14 at the time. 14. What a little adventure. A near catastrophe, really. Yeah, really. Could have been if he uh, didn't know what to do. He could have been traveling along, having no idea. Well, Dad, all that adrenaline got you with the presence of mind to yell smartly, get off at the next stop, and yeah, don't mind the gap. <laughs> probably, you know, for people in the future, it's probably not a bad idea to have the name of the hotel put on the child someplace so that if they ever did get lost, they'd know where to return to or tell the police. So, You know, Alan, that's a great idea. In fact, we even do that with our adult travelers on our tours. Everybody gets a little list of all the hotels, and they stick it in their money belt, and then, you know, if, if they yeah. get uh, get lost or decide to miss the bus... They know how to get to the hotel, and I've had tour members that have gotten lost, and I go to the police, and, and they go, oh, you're looking for so-and-so from America. Yeah, she's over at the other police station, and it, it sorts out, but, boy, it sure is nice to have some plan in advance. Uh, did you have just one child in London, or, or how many kids did you have? I have three kids, but I've taken them each over there. Uh, individually separately. or all together? Uh, no, each separately around age 14. What a great idea. How does that how has that worked out for you? Oh, it's worked out excellent. It's a great bonding experience. I'm a single father, so you have... Just time the two of you for you know a week or two, and you have adventures and things to talk about later. So I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Have the kids wanted to go, or have you had to sort of oh, coerce yeah. them into going? No, go? I actually took each of them twice. So yeah, they wanted to go each time. Yeah, my parents took me when I was fourteen for my first time. I didn't want to go, but you know, in about day two, I realized, boy, this is a lot of fun over here. Yeah, actually, with James, this first one, the funny thing was when uh, we first went, we went from Detroit to Philadelphia to London. We get to Philadelphia, he kind of knows where that is, and then we're off over the Atlantic for about an hour, and he says, how come we're not in London yet? <laughs> I have to explain to him, it's an eight-hour trip over the Atlantic. He had no idea how long it took, and I never told him. So what were some of the uh, highlights, do you think, from your child's perspective of London? Uh, from their perspective, I think it's just totally new things all the time. Um, sort of like camping out with your dad, because you go to hostels and find out-of-the-way places. We didn't stay at uh, three-star or four-star hotels, just cheap little places. We could kind of make plans as we went. We'd have, you know, several things we wanted to do, but then we'd change plans based on their interests. Great way to bond with your child and give them a sort of a springboard for future adventures on their own, perhaps. Well, in fact, ironically, my son right now is uh, getting ready to go to Africa with a class, and my other son is a camp counselor in Croatia. So they've certainly taken it to heart. Thanks to their father's interest in uh, investing in their yeah, global so. perspective. Yeah, good investment. Well, I've, I've just, as we speak, my, I just got a phone call from my daughter. She's in Amsterdam right now, and she's 18 years old with her best girlfriend, and it's their first time in Europe away from parents. And, you know, you can take them to Europe with mom and dad providing a sort of a safety net, but, boy, they get over there on their own as, as teens, and all of a sudden they become quite mature and responsible because there's nobody going to pick them up if they fall. Thanks for your uh, call, Alan, and any general advice you might give to other parents considering this? Yeah, two things that come to mind is, one is I always stopped in in, uh, Switzerland, and of course your books talk a lot about Gimbelwald and the surrounding area, and that's our favorite. So um, we go hiking over there, and I always gave them a camera. So they always had something to do, even if they're going to um, other sites like the Tower of London or whatever. With that camera, they felt like not only were they a part of what's going on, but they could bring back memories. So... Those are two little hints that work 
well for me. And of course, if you get on the subway without your dad, get off at the next stop. <laughs> yeah, that's probably worth telling people. <laughs> thanks, Alan, for your call and uh, continued happy travels. Okay, thanks, Rick. Uh-huh. Bye. Emma in Davis, California emails us, and Emma writes, For literature geeks, try collecting excerpts from poems and stories that relate to sites you're visiting. Then read the passages when you get there. When you climb Notre Dame's towers, pull out your snippet of Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame and enrich the scene. Hemingway in Madrid, Byron in Venice, the list goes on and on. Great tip from Emma in California. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.